You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, a high-tech robot that kills viruses on contact, the research on drive through vaccinations, and will businesses stick with e-commerce after this is over? But we begin in the classroom. Well, time now to catch up with Ontario's Education Minister Stephen Lecce, and there is much to discuss. Is spring break still a go? Online learning and the possibility that it may become permanent, and the minister's letter to the federal government asking it to plan ahead to procure vaccines for children and youth. Education Minister and MPP for King Vaughan Stephen Lecce is our guest on the feed. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, and good to be here. A lot of people, particularly parents in this province, wondering about the April 12th start for school break. Is it still a go? It is. I mean, we want to respect the decision to defer, not cancel March break. You know, I think our students and staff could certainly use a bit of a uh, time to uh, replenish the spirits and take it to time to rest as well. So, look, we are going to respect it and honour it. Obviously, we've continued to follow the best medical advice uh, because at the end of the day, we don't want to do anything that can compound the challenge of community transmission. Uh, but um, we followed the Dr. Williams' recommendation to defer it. We're working with him in real time uh, to uh, bring forth some pretty comprehensive measures that are going to reduce uh, any risk once these kids and staff return to school following the break. And I think as parents understand more about the enhancements to testing, and to further infection prevention measures, I think it'll give confidence that we're doing everything possible to make sure when they come back, they're safe. So there are many out there, including the very vocal unions, who are asking you to consider online learning upon the return from the Easter weekend, uh, which we're in the middle of right now, and also when students go back uh, to uh, learning after the spring break, starting April 12th. What are your thoughts on those demands? Look, we're going to follow the best advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health. You know, we've spoken to institutions like SickKids and some of the leading pediatric hospitals in Canada, all of whom have said that schools really ought to stay open. Uh, They need to be the last to close, the first to reopen. We have closed schools in Ontario following medical advice. Uh, I think those were time-limited interventions uh, that ultimately come with a cost to kids. So we're going to follow the best medical advice. Our aim is to keep schools safe and open, uh, but obviously we'll never take any risks when it comes to your youngsters. So, you know, Dr. Williams, um, sick kids, some of the best medical minds in Ontario and Canada will give us guidance. We will follow that direction because when it comes to students and staff, we obviously have one priority, which is their safety. So in other words, it's a little like one day at a time when it comes to making these decisions. It's about, you know, listening to medical advice. I think the ultimate decision maker when it comes to keeping a child in a school, knowing it, fully realizing the casualty and the, the, the adverse impacts of a school closure, it really should be dictated by and recommended by uh, the medical authorities in Ontario. So we're going to follow their advice as we have every step of the way. It's why 99% of schools today 
are open. It's why 76, 75% of schools don't have one active case. It's why 99% of students don't have an active case at all. I mean, I'm not trying to trivialize the challenges we're facing in the community, which have profound impacts on schools. All I'm simply saying is putting into context, we've done a Herculean amount of work by our educators, by our staff, our teachers, um, our parents, and of course the students themselves. And somehow, against all odds, we've kept the overwhelming majority of schools open. That is a great thing. But yes, we've got to continue to be vigilant. And yes, we've got to continue to follow advice that does change sometimes day to day. You are right. And I think that's a strength in Ontario. We've got to be nimble in following that advice, including when it may change. But to date, everything we're hearing is schools continue to be safe, realizing there are one-off challenges. We are dealing with them very surgically, uh, making sure testing is expanded, and these kids get access to online learning so that their continuity of learning continues uninterrupted. Minister Lecce, then, what is your plan? What have you in place to safely bring students back from that week-long break in April? We're going to be uh, bringing forth recommendations that I think are going to make a big difference, including um, expanding access to testing to students, uh, that could include a take-home test, which we think is going to make a big difference uh, in giving people, arming families with an easy-to-use test, saliva-based test that's not invasive, that I think could really strengthen the confidence of families. And look, we're not going to take a risk when your child and our staff return to school following the break. So we're enhancing the testing. We're enhancing the infection prevention measures. That can include a more active screening requirement um, where we will have staff at the front of schools making sure that there are no symptoms, there are no siblings or family members with COVID before kids enter the school. The aim really is to prevent a child from entering a school with any symptom, any case, to stop the spread of this disease. We realize the overwhelming majority of cases are not transmitting, they're not spreading within the school. That speaks to our strong public health protocols. But having said that, with these variants of concern, we have to make sure that we take um, you know, a, a heightened level of vigilance to respond to the VOCs, which is why we've put in place the expanded testing, uh, enhanced screening of staff, as well as deep cleaning of all schools before students re-enter. These types of practical steps we can take, that we are taking, I think are going to make a difference, and I hope demonstrate to parents that we will do whatever it takes to safely reintegrate your children back into class following the break. This has been making headlines off and on for the past 10 days that there is legislation being prepared that would make online learning that option. It would be permanent in the fall. Yeah, I think it was a bit interesting that the teacher unions in your prior question are urging us to go online, and yet they oppose the choice for parents when they decide to exercise online learning, not because of a global pandemic or a natural disaster, etc. I think the common thread here is having an online and remote learning system has been a strength in Ontario. It has been the backstop when, God forbid, when schools have been closed globally, those jurisdictions that thought ahead, as Ontario did a year ago, well before the pandemic, to embrace a form of digital learning, to strengthen our internet connectivity, to create an expectation for our educators that they have to be able to teach online using the best modern uh, platforms to do so that are dynamic, engaging. That type of proactivity was a strength because Ontario is the only province in the nation that's offering uh, K-12 
remote learning where your child is home and yet they're learning by an Ontario certified teacher using our curriculum, using technology to keep these kids engaged in the curriculum. Now, I've got to say, and to be quite frank, the overwhelming amount of children do best in a classroom for their social development, for their learning, the social emotional aspects. You know, these things are critical. You cannot uh, substitute them. But I also believe that for some children, a minority, a small minority, when you look at the grand scheme of students, actually do well online. You know, and there's family circumstances where, you know, immunocompromised siblings living with a grandparent, intergenerational families, whatever the circumstance, I believe the decision maker ought to be mom and dad, not a bureaucrat, not a politician, and certainly not a teacher union president. This is about arming you, the parent, with the right to make the best decision for you. Every child is is going to school in September unless you decide to put them online. That'd be the vision. Now we're not we've not committed to doing this. We're consulting on it. I just think it's important. People appreciate that the choice rests exclusively with you. The expectations would be high for our educators. The standards would be high. We've improved the online learning system dramatically from last spring, where it was never we never did it really in Ontario to a system now that is sort of the, the gold standard in Canada and I recognize folks we've come a long way but we've got a lot more to go to further improve the system so I'm proud of the progress I just think if we formalize this give the parents choice in September this pandemic's not going anywhere you know while I am an optimistic person in what a post-vaccine world looks like when all adults who are and will get a vaccine by September I still think there is risk and I still think parents should have the choice which is why we're consulting to hear people's perspectives, but I just want to say full stop. I appreciate fully the merits of in-class learning. I, benef- I benefited from it, um, but I also believe at the end of the day, parents will make the best decision for their child. Minister Lecce, earlier this week, you sent a letter to the federal government asking it for procurement when it comes to vaccines for children and youth. Why did you do that? Well, look, I mean, Canada is roughly the 50th in the world as a per capita share of Canadians who've received a vaccine. We are the 50th in the world. That is, in my estimation, we are literally one of the most prosperous, wealthy, industrialized economies. How is it that we're 50? I mean, we should not be behind, you know, uh, Bahrain or Turkey, uh, you know, Morocco, respectfully to those, um, to those countries. I mean, it just, we're one of the top 10 economies in the world, and yet we're here. And I think there must be lessons learned applied where we think ahead and finally act, uh, plan ahead to procure vaccines. Now, I'm not here telling you what to do with your child. Ironically, I just said that's about parental choice. The vaccine is your choice. What I'm simply saying is we know clinical trials are underway today for children 16 and under. That's happening. If you like it or not, that's taking place by the pharmaceuticals. All I'm simply saying is, given that that is taking place, given that we're likely going to have approvals potentially as soon as the end of this calendar year, in the middle of the next school year, I want the federal government to reflect, to build a plan, and to start today to procure the supply that they're going to need to get young people who want a vaccine a vaccine so that we are the leader, not the lagger, when it comes to vaccine procurement and delivery. I just think, you know, as we try to seek uh, to, to get to herd immunity, as we try to build that critical mass of individuals that have the vaccine, it's going to be critical. We have a plan in place today before it's too late because we we don't want to repeat history. And so my point in, in short is let's work together to get these to the provinces so that we in the provinces could get them out to families that want them. Is it your belief that the vaccination of young people is critical when it comes to ending this pandemic? 
Well, that is the opinion of many medical leaders. I mean, I'm self-aware of my strengths. I'm not a doctor. So, you know, my opinion is, is really much, is very much predicated on, it's informed by medical science. So what I'm hearing is getting children vaccinated to prevent the spread will be critical because these kids go home and they're living with mom and dad. Mom and dad and grandma and grandpa may have a vaccine, but the children don't, and therefore there's still the potential for spread. So their opinion seems to be that that a holistic vaccine rollout is going to be critical to defeating this pandemic. And I know we can. I know we will in this province and country. Um, but it just will require an element of forward planning, proactivity, and an application of lessons learned. So we just don't go through this again. Because honestly, you know, uh, you know, I think we all realize what just took place at Wonderland for adults for 16 and up. They had to open it this past Monday only to close it. The next day. I mean, I'm sorry, that's just unacceptable to not have vaccine supply. We're, this is not our first rodeo. We're over 12 months into this va- into this pandemic, and vaccines have been approved since the end of last year. So I just want us to do better, and I think we can, and I think collaboratively we will. It just requires uh, us to plan today for tomorrow. Ontario's education minister also with an eye on the health of students and teachers and everyone involved in the public school system in Ontario and the residents of York Region. You've tied it all together. Stephen Lecce, thank you very much for joining us on The Feed. Okay, have a great weekend. Next on The Feed, help for laid-off workers and the business of e-commerce. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Help wanted? Well, it's more like help needed these days, particularly for the many laid-off, out-of-work Ontarians hoping to qualify for that next and better job. The provincial budget delivered last week promises financial investment that will help prepare, train, and support individuals for those in-demand jobs. Let's explore, find out what this all means, which job sectors are at play, and who might be eligible. Ontario's Minister of Labour, Training and Skills Development, Monty McNaughton, joins us now on the feed. Thanks for being with us. And great to be with you again. So earlier this week, you and the finance minister announcing that the Ontario government is investing close to $600,000 to help prepare 150 people in the Hamilton area for well-paying jobs in the construction centre. Can you expand on that, please? Absolutely. I mean, we know that uh, workers and their families have been uh, impacted uh, quite negatively uh, because of COVID-19. I mean, thousands of people have lost their jobs or have had their hours uh, reduced. So uh, my focus and ours as a government is to ensure that workers have the right skills to find uh, good, meaningful jobs because we know this strengthens their families and builds uh, better communities. One way we're doing that is with uh, the new Skills Development Fund. And the very first announcement we did in Hamilton uh, this past week was uh, to uh, help 150 people get the right training for uh, well-paying careers uh, in construction. Interesting, because a lot of people think that there may not be, at least at the entry level for construction, as many skills needed. So what kinds of things are these people, the 150 chosen, what will they be learning? What skills will they be training in? Well, I mean, the the great thing uh, and the great opportunities that are out there for people is um, better jobs. So in, in many cases, 
Um, obviously, people have been hard hit because um, they've lost jobs in tourism and hospitality uh, at local restaurants, unfortunately, in, in many communities. But the, the good news is that there's even better jobs waiting for them. So the Hamilton uh, project that we announced this week, um, those people will end up with well-paying jobs uh, in construction. There'll be environmental engineers, uh, civil engineers, surveyors, uh, general managers on uh, job sites. So, so there'll be all kinds of training uh, provided uh, to uh, ensure that they get uh, those jobs in the end. And why the construction sector? Well, there's a, a huge shortage. I mean, one of the uh, missions I'm on is to get more uh, people into the skilled trades. Uh, in construction alone, we're short about 100,000 workers over the next uh, 10 years. And of course, uh, Premier Ford and our government's on an ambitious agenda when it comes to expanding broadband, uh, subways, uh, roads and bridges and natural gas. I mean, all of these uh, projects take a lot of skilled trades workers. And we want people to know that uh, careers in the skilled trades are lucrative. In many cases, they pay uh, six figures with pensions and benefits. And when you have a, a trade, you have a job for life. And it's not lost on any of us that uh, many construction projects continued even through major lockdowns in this province. Absolutely. I, I'm the first to say that those women and men, more than a half a million of them, uh, worked uh, every single day uh, during the pandemic. They truly are heroes building you know, COVID testing assessment centers and hospitals and long-term care homes, they've done truly heroic work. Will this be a blueprint? Will you expand on this kind of training and investment? Absolutely. I mean, we announced $600,000 in Hamilton uh, for these 150 people to prepare for uh, well-paying jobs in construction. This is part of a a much larger investment of $115 million to uh, roll out um, uh, training programs and up skilling uh, workers out there. So the 2021 budget also proposing new Ontario jobs training tax credit. It will provide somewhere around $2,000 per recipient for 50% of eligible training expense. Can you tell me what that means in, in simple language that I can understand? Well, look, um, uh, this puts workers uh, in the driver's seat. Um, if any person out there wants to uh, go out and get a training, whether it's through a local private career college or a college or a university or other training providers. Uh, all they need to do is save their receipts this year, and when they fill out their taxes next year, uh, they'll get up to $2,000 um, rebate from those expenses. So I noticed uh, on your Twitter feed not long ago, you mentioned the second career strategy. It's something that I think had been rolled out about a year ago, but it's, it's, there's a resurgence of interest in it. What exactly is the second career strategy? Well, I'm really uh, excited about this uh, program. You know, you talk about spreading uh, opportunity more widely and fairly and giving people hope. Uh, this program uh, does that. So it's really um, dedicated to those people who have lost their job uh, during the pandemic to quickly get them training uh, at a local, uh, you know, educational institute. So again, private career college, college or university. Um, All of the program training is 12 months or under, and it's only for in-demand jobs. So when people enroll in second career, uh, they get approved, they get their training, they know they're going to get a job within 12 months. And what kind of financial support do you offer? And specifically, where can it go? Well, it's a large investment um, on behalf of the government. It's actually up to $28,000 per uh, recipient. 
This helps cover the costs of uh, tuition. We'll pay, pay all of the uh, tuition. We'll help with um, living expenses and any other uh, expenses related uh, to getting this uh, retraining. And uh, again, uh, they can uh, visit an Employment Ontario uh, office uh, in uh, a community across the province and, and register and, and quickly get into a training program. Who qualifies for these programs and what, who is eligible? Well, when it comes to the second career program, the, the first group that we're really focused on is, is those people that have lost their jobs because of COVID-19, those people in the tourism, hospitality uh, sectors, for example. But I have to tell you a great story, and uh, there was a, a gentleman, uh, Roger, whom I met uh, a number of months ago. He actually worked at GM Oshawa for nine years uh, when uh, GM was open. Of course, unfortunately, uh, it closed uh, a number of uh, months or, or years ago. And he always wanted to give back and always wanted to help seniors uh, in our communities. So he enrolled in the second career program. Uh, Roger is now 56 years old, and he is now working in long-term care homes as a PSW. Uh, of course, the pandemic has highlighted the need for more workers in healthcare, uh, more workers in technology, and uh, the ever-growing need for uh, more skilled trades workers. So those are the three areas that uh, the second career program helps to get people trained for those jobs. What about Ontarians laid off out of work who may not have a high school diploma but found work decades ago and continue to work in it until the pandemic or may not have a university degree, may not know that they have what it takes to move into technology or into healthcare? How do you encourage them to at least look into the programs? You know, it's by telling them that there's life-changing opportunities uh, out there. I mean, prior to the pandemic, uh, 200,000 jobs were going unfilled uh, every single day uh, in the province. The, the good news is those jobs are still out there going unfilled. So there's lots of opportunity uh, out there. And for, for those workers who maybe have worked in one job or two jobs for decades, they can apply for this program. They can uh, certainly take advantage of the new Ontario Jobs Training Tax Credit. That's open to every single person uh, in the province over the age of 26 years. And, of course, the, the second career program. And many people uh, have uh, skills that in many cases they don't even realize they have that employers are looking for. And our job uh, as, as a government is, and me as Minister of Labor Training and Skills Development is to do everything humanly possible to spread that hope and opportunity uh, to everyone in the province. And we're aligning our programs to ensure that everyone gets help. Minister McNaughton, is it fair to say that because of the pandemic, healthcare and technology, those two fields, those two job fields are probably one and two and, and back and forth in terms of in demand now? You're absolutely right. In fact, the, the top three, it's health for sure, you know, PSWs, nurses, uh, other providers, uh, technology, and then uh, the skilled trades as well. But, but you're right, a real focus on health and technology. What do you say to young people who are in university now, in college, and they are trying to determine the path they should take? So they're not at a stage where they're laid off or they're out of work or they feel they aren't skilled. What should they be keeping in mind as they move forward toward the workforce? Well, I'm a big believer, um, you know, having a, a daughter myself who uh, will at some point uh, uh, in the next decade be deciding what she wants to do. 
Um, but it's just important to, uh, I think, make sure you're getting educated for a job that exists. I mean, one of uh, my missions is to get more young people uh, into the skilled trades. Uh, we don't need every single you know, young person going to university. Uh, in fact, in, in the skilled trades, one in three journey persons today is over the age of 55, and the average age of an apprentice is 29. Mm. Uh, that means that there's all kinds of students uh, going to university, piling up debt, then deciding that they want to go into the trades. That's why, you know, we're moving forward with introducing the skilled trades at a much younger age. Uh, I'm actually sending uh, recruiters into high schools uh, in September to compete head-on with university uh, recruiters just so young people know the pathways to get into the trades and to ensure that they know uh, there's viable opportunities out there. And go into it full of pride because it's something to be very proud of to be a skilled tradesperson, that is for sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's not just the six-figure salaries and pensions and benefits. It's, you know, having the pride of seeing something that you've built. Uh, Most young people, for example, don't know that there's more than 140 different skilled trades uh, in Ontario. Uh, I can't tell you, Anne, how many times young people come up to me and they'll say, I know to become uh, a lawyer, I know to become a banker, but I have no idea how to become uh, a chef or an electrician or an arborist. I mean, there's the world's their opportunity. If people want more information about how they can start to unravel the mystery that could be getting into these programs, and I know you're going to try to make it easy for every one of us, where should we go? Uh, Two ways. Uh, First, visit an Employment Ontario office. There's 700 locations uh, across the province, many uh, in the GTA and in York region. And then secondly, uh, they can go online uh, to ontario.ca forward slash employment. Ontario's Minister of Labour, Training and Skills Development, Monty McNaughton, thank you so much for being with us on the feed. And always great to be with you and your listeners. And still with the economy, it seems many businesses will remain online. Jim Lang with Why. Well, now we are into year two of the pandemic and the challenges facing small businesses in Canada has been great to say the least to talk more about it and the transition these businesses have made to survive and thrive. Thrilled to be speaking to Mandy Dutramal from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She's the Senior Director, Member Experience and Strategy. Mandy, how are you? I'm good, thanks, and really happy to be here to talk to you today about what small businesses are doing to connect with their customers during the pandemic. Well, I mean, and this is more important now than ever. I mean, a lot of us this time last year thought, well, the pandemic will be over by the fall, and in 2021 we'll be back to normal, and now we're staring at another four, five, six, eight months of pandemic life. So for businesses, the transitioning to a different way of doing business is so vital to stay alive. Absolutely. We are um, finding that um, digital plans, so connecting with customers online, improving their websites, these are topping the list of what businesses are prioritizing in 2021. And that's really no surprise when we look back at what business owners had to do to survive the first year of the pandemic. Um, One-third of small businesses said that they, um, they really had to make their online sales Um, a part of their business in order to survive. And then um, half of small business owners say that their online presence and connecting with their customers through uh, platforms like Facebook, um, Instagram, um, on their websites, 
digital marketing, all these different ways to connect with customers were really important during the pandemic. You know, the the great thing about this, Mandy, is sometimes we assume millennial-owned businesses would be really in deep with a lot of these different platforms, whether it's social media or, or uh, digital media, to sell their goods in the pandemic. But a lot of older traditional businesses really did their homework and did a great job of, of all of a sudden being available on Instagram and Facebook and digitally be able to order online and pick it up. And, you know, and the, I tip my cap to them for making that transition. I think it really speaks to the innovative spirit, the drive and determination for small business owners to keep their passion, their livelihood going in the toughest of times. And you're right, it is not just kind of the, the businesses that you would think um, typically would be online. A lot of businesses have gotten online in the last year. Um, and, and when we look forward to what um, the digital uh, footprint is going to be for small businesses going forward, we actually asked about um, what's going to happen after the pandemic. And I know that now this year, where we are, that seems like a really long way away. Um, hopefully it's not as long as what uh, some people may worry, but half of business owners, so that's 48% of business owners are going to be selling online even after the pandemic ends. So being online is not a temporary fix for small business owners. This is a permanent way that businesses are looking to connect with their customers. And I think that also speaks to the fact that customers' um, purchasing behavior has also adjusted during the pandemic and expectations are changing. Only 2% of businesses are going to um, put a pause or step away from selling online after the pandemic ends. But we can't forget the other half of business owners have never sold online. They have no plans to. A lot of businesses, just the products they sell or the structure of their business doesn't lean towards selling online. Speaking with Mandy Dutramont from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the Senior Director of Member Experience and Strategy. As always, you can go to their great website, cfib.ca. Uh, apps is another thing I found has really made a resurgence in businesses, um, whether it's a fitness apps from former gyms that couldn't sell or couldn't have people online, and we're using YouTube channels and apps to help you stay in shape or to book something you could do online. So I, I, it's not just actually going on the laptop. It's just uh, the convenience of your phone to connect with your local small business and I find that's been very helpful for my family. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've experienced the same thing. I'm actually going to a trainer who I connect with through my phone, and um, my husband does his fitness classes online as well. So um, there's definitely a lot of innovation happening out there, and certainly these businesses they're so eager for things to get back to normal, and I think what um, is really great is also Canadians and especially people in the GTA is where we've had a lot of restrictions here um, are still supporting small businesses even in these uh, where you might normally want to be in the gym um, with all your um, all, all your friends but uh, it's not uh, always possible so these new and innovative ways to connect and support small businesses is is really great. And um, and one of the other things that I also want to make sure small business owners know about is that there are a lot of tools out there to support them in this adaptation. Um, we know that there are places like Digital Main Street that have um, come together during the pandemic to help businesses get online. And there's also a new um, um, Grow My Store that's from Google. So businesses can actually put their information um, into Grow My Store on, and then they get back tips and and. Um, advice on how they can better improve their digital presence. 
You know, Mandy, the one thing that has been interesting, I find, in the pandemic is certain small businesses I never thought of before have been so busy they can't keep up, and that's all these independent cleaning services for deep cleaning of locations and homes and businesses to keep them safe and COVID-free. And also, I find any sort of person who has an independent business with a couple vehicles for that last mile delivery, they call it, for people who are ordering online, they're also, also very busy, I find, the last six to eight months. Yeah, a lot of businesses have um, have had just changes in the patterns of um, customer behavior. So there are some businesses like that that um, certainly have been able to um, to get more business. But I think overall, when we look at the broader business community, um, only thirty one percent of businesses are at their normal revenues. So there really still is a um, a huge need for. Um, for everyone to support small businesses and help them get back and, and keep their businesses open. Yeah, so whether it's finding them online or in person, it's really important to think small businesses every day. Indeed, Mandy, and that's, that could be anything, whether it's dry cleaning, uh, the local hardware store, whatever it is, that small, independently owned business or diner or whatever it is could really use all your business to help them get through this. So any little bit will add up and help them. Absolutely, and, and it can even be sharing and, and recommending other businesses that you are your favorite businesses with your friends and family on social, um, following the small businesses where they are um, on social or on their websites, um, because small businesses, they want to connect with, with their customers. That's the biggest challenge they have, and especially during the pandemic. So um, every little bit that we can do to um, to find the small businesses and support our, our local community um, in that way is, I think, a really positive thing and something people can really um, be, be proud of when they're taking that extra step to find small businesses and support them online. Well said, Mandy. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business is there to help you, cfib.ca. Mandy, a real pleasure. All the best, and hopefully we all get through this and are stronger on the other side. Thank you, Jim. Take care. A drone that does double duty, hmm, that's next on the feed. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. So here's something incredibly clever, and it puts safety first. Heather Seaman with the high-flying details. An iconic restaurant is using COVID-killing technology to enhance safety and peace of mind for its customers and staff. Here to tell us how Harbour 60 Toronto and other businesses are making use of this special Canadian technology is Sparta Group President and Chief Technology Officer John O'Barrick. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Heather. Thanks for having me on. So tell us about this high-tech spray. Yeah, it, it, is, it is new and innovative, the, the technology we have. Is, uh, and, and, it's, and we're pleased to be working with, uh, with uh, Harbour 60 because... You know, this, the city is is uh, under uh, under distress, as we know, and, we're, and it's going to be so nice to, be, to have it come back in. So, one of the things that they have done is they've employed 
our group to uh, our core 19 group to be able to uh, spray this this uh, technology to to cover the surfaces because you know there is all kinds of surface cleaning like you, we've got chlorine and and uh, ammonia that, that go on and clean and yes it does kill 99.9 percent of the of the germs as do we but what we also do is we leave behind a protective coating where it's set up like a network of swords like uh, chemical swords that have a positive nitrogen atom that uh, that attract the pathogen and then de- um, destroy the destroy the the, the uh, uh, virus. So uh, the difference is that while you kill it, if somebody sneezes two hours later, at least when it lands, there's a protective coating down there that's, that's going to protect that, that uh, uh, virus from spreading. Can you give us a, a bit of background on this technology and how long it's been around? Well, the technology or the chemicals themselves have been around for quite some time. They've been used in a lot of things, including surgery. So they're very safe uh, it's alcohol-free, uh, Health Canada approved, and uh, uh, natural ingredients. Um, the blending that we put together um, in in this product uh, is is designed really for, sur- for for surface protection. Describe for our listeners what it looks like and how it's applied. Sure. Sure. We, we use a number of different tools to, uh, to uh, lay, down the, lay down a product and provide the protection. In the case of things like a stadium, we would use, we would use a drone where it, it flies above the, uh, above the crowd. In fact, they can set it up. We're, we're working on uh, a program right now for uh, gymnasiums, uh, for the, especially in the United States, where in between quarters or, or halves, the, the, the drone would go out and it would land on the uh, – or, or, would spray and then come back and land back in its starting point. But where we're, what we're t- dealing with here is, is a rover. So they're attached to the ground, but they, they, they drive like a radio-operated vehicle. And, but they can be programmed to be able to spray the same pattern every time. So in our facility, our own uh, factory, we have a very, you know, one route that we use every two weeks, and we go around and we, and we spray the same thing. It, it, it's for mass, uh, mass coverage that we can put out there. But we also have uh, um, uh, individual sprayers, so electrostatic spraying, where, where the Core 19 come in, team come in, and they'll spray, spray into the corners um, and, and the washrooms and every other spot that, that's around there. So we give a complete, full uh, uh, coverage, you know, even the things like on the walls. The walls get sprayed with, it, with all of this. So if, if somebody does happen to sneeze, like the virus doesn't sit around forever. It doesn't, it doesn't last forever, but at least if... If there's a place where somebody happens to, uh, you know, rub it off or pass it on to there, it, we know that it'll, it, it will be killed in those places. So is it a one-time use product to kill the virus on surfaces or are multiple applications necessary? Multiple. The, the, it is a 30-day period. The, the, uh, uh, the, the product, the actual ingredients of the product are rated to be able to last up to 30 days. Uh, it really lasts indefinitely, but with our rating is for 30 days, and that will. And then every 30 days, we come back. Uh, the, the Core 19 team comes back, and then uh, uh, we will we will um, uh, spray again in 30 days, and then we put up a certificate so that we can show that you can put it on the on your front window to display that the place has been covered. Because all this comes down to is really. We want to make sure that people feel comfortable when they walk into a facility like this, and that's what Harbor 60 are doing. They do all kinds of things with, uh, with, with making sure that they're, they're uh, tracking, protecting, uh, dividing up the people you know, into six-foot uh, uh, spaces across from their things, but this is just one more thing to help, make, help people feel safe. And this is not something people can buy off store shelves yet. So I mean, it- Not yet. 
Not yet. The pandemic has really opened our eyes to a lot of things, including the need for virus protection. So what does the future look like for this type of cleaning technology? Um, well, we, we're hoping and we're expecting that, that not only ours, but there will be other types of technology. It is a pandemic, so uh, humankind are a very uh, hardy species, and we do come up with solutions. So we're not, you know, the, the, the future, I would say, looks bright. I think that the, what, we, what we have here is something that, that uh, is, is one way of fixing things, at least for now. Um, it, it's very interesting technology. It's technology, if any of your listeners want to take a look at, go to our website, and, and uh, there's a cute little animation on there where people can, can uh, just see how that technology works inside there. And tell us the website again. Uh, the website is, uh, we have two websites. One is uh, spartagroup.ca or core-19.com, like C-O-R-E-19.com. I know Harbor 60 Steakhouse is not the only place Sparta Group is using this technology to sterilize surfaces. So what more can you tell us about where it's being used? Well, one big thing is this, this isn't just for restaurants. This restaurant is one area where, we, where we're wanting to see the people come back, to, uh, back out. But it's, it's office towers, it's churches, arenas, movie theaters. We've been involved in, in any number of these things, long-term care homes. Everywhere where there's a surface and where people are feeling unsafe at this point, we, we are able to go into those places and try to, try to uh, provide, it, provide that next level of, of, of coverage and safety into a line that I often use, help kill the bug in people's minds. Great. Thanks, John. So, once again, Core 19 is a high-tech spray that sterilizes surfaces in commercial, industrial, and hospital settings. As John O'Barrick mentioned, you can go to spartagroup.ca or core-19.com for more information. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you. Thanks very much. Our next stop on the feed, drive-through vaccination clinics are the way to go. Tina Cortez with that story. Earlier this week, the Canada's Wonderland drive-through vaccination clinic opened and then closed due to supply issues. It was the first drive-through COVID-19 vaccine clinic in York Region, and when supplies are replenished, it will open again. But who knew that this type of mass vaccination center would work? We'll meet Professor Ali Asghari from York University. He is the Associate Director of the Advanced Disaster Emergency and Rapid Response Simulation. Dr. Asghari, thank you for joining the feed. Thank you very much for having me. So let's begin with your work at the university. What exactly do you focus on? Uh, we focus on a number of uh, disaster and emergency simulation, but when COVID started, of course, like many other researchers, we also shifted our focus to COVID-related research and activities, one of which was drive-through and, generally speaking, mass vaccination clinics that will be coming after uh, vaccine becomes available. So we, we started focusing on this line of research, knowing that this would be something important to, to be done uh, and also very challenging uh, under you know, vaccinating large number of people uh, in a short period of time. And I guess it was research that had to be completed very quickly because it was going to be applied very quickly, right? Uh, absolutely. But we had this in mind uh, long before even, uh, you know, vaccine becomes available. So we had this uh, uh, focus uh, early on. That helped a lot because when we started, uh, when we finished almost our 
our research uh, with the whole group of uh, our team members uh, and publish this and develop the simulation uh, and publicize also the simulation. Uh, that was almost the beginning of uh, vaccination or vaccine becomes available to uh, health workers and others uh, early on uh, in, in November. We, uh, so it was quite handy, ready to be used by practitioners and health agencies uh, around the country and also globally. And before we get into where exactly it is being used, do you remember you said there was a team involved here. Where did the idea of a drive-through vaccination clinic actually come from? The idea, I mean, there are two, two uh, answers to this question. One is that, uh, of course, when it comes to mass vaccination, uh, there has been discussion before and also experiments before uh, uh, with regard to, for example, H1N1 uh, pandemic. Uh, there were some examples of drive-through uh, clinics being mounted to, to help or expedite the process. Even before that, there were samples of or examples of using drive-through in health-related, uh, you know, services. Um, but um, the, the the other thing that I think supported this this initiative was uh, some of the drive-through testing clinics during the this COVID-19 pandemic. That, uh, of course, testing is much easier. Drive-through testing it it doesn't have the complications that other or vaccination uh, clinics have, but uh, I think that brought this idea that this, this could be a very good option that we can at least, uh, you know, experiment and do some research. Well, it turned out to be a very good option uh, as well. So you mentioned testing. How is testing of a drive through clinic conducted? What do you look for? Um, testing was not uh, our research focus. Uh, as I said, we, we focus on uh, mostly on uh, vaccination, but testing has been done, has been used drive-through for testing has been done uh, during this pandemic uh, in a number of places. Uh, and again, this was uh, more uh, of a concern that you don't want to bring in people, a uh, large number of people for testing in a facility that is uh, already, uh, you know, uh, congested with large number of people or you need those clinics for other purposes. So uh, drive-through was an option to minimize uh, people contacts during the, the testing process. Uh, and also, you know, like other drive-through cases, it, it uh, creates a situation where you can uh, do mass testing. Could you describe for us the purpose or the goal of the simulation? Sure. Uh, the simulation uh, intended to uh, develop a tool that helps health agencies or whoever is going to develop and design and operate these kind of facilities, first of all, to, to understand the overall layout of these uh, kind of drive-through facilities and also uh, the operation aspect of this, all uh, from site selection, design of the layout of different segments of your um, drive through to uh, how uh, many, for example, the staff or staffing issues related to that, how many staff you need for, uh, for example, if this, this drive through has two lanes, three lanes, four lanes, and how much time it takes from going from each station in a drive through to, to the next. And overall, the goal was to uh, maximize the number of people that can be vaccinated in the shortest possible time so that the waiting time is also Reduced. This helps, of course, to minimize the cost of the operation because 
the longer you have this operation uh, in terms of uh, wait time for people and also number of people, uh, staff, so overall, this, this is kind of cost for, uh, for operators. So it helps also minimizing the cost through simulation. You can uh, run the simulation and see what is best uh, considering your, your drive-through layout, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, the drive-through clinic at Wonderland, it was short-lived, but were you satisfied with how it worked? I am in contact with these people on the ground, but uh, it is too soon to really uh, do any uh, assessment of that because it hasn't been run for long um, to to get enough data to, to do some assessment and analysis. But uh, as more um, days or in future when, when this facility is going to be used more, uh, I believe this can be, you know, we, we will have enough data to assess that. But overall, every drive-through clinic, basically, if they are designed, uh, you know, in the way that they have, they have to be designed and also operated in, in an efficient way, which means, you know, putting uh, the, the right number of staff uh, in right locations in the drive-through, it should work uh, really nice. Uh, and of course, this has to be supplied by vaccine. Uh, that is important. And more importantly is the way we, we bring in people to the drive-through, especially with regard to registration. Registration is an element in, in drive-through that takes a lot of time if people come pre uh, not registered. So uh, registration becomes a very important aspect and element of this. Uh, if we can have you know a system in place that let people register before they come to drive-through. It saves time for them and also helps uh, operational aspects, especially people on the ground, to to expedite the process and handle this very uh, or much more efficiently. Of course. And now, where else in the country or internationally is the idea of the drive-through clinic being used, or where is it in place? Well, I can tell you that there are a large number of countries currently. Uh, using uh, drive-through, uh, I haven't tracked them all, but uh, you know, for the purpose of research, we are following up some of them. Uh, in U.S., there are many of these sites are now, even today, are operating in many different states and counties. In in uh, in Europe, uh, in in Australia, in 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 Asia, uh, some countries have already started using uh, drive-through clinics. Most most countries that have received enough doses of vaccine to uh, go to sort of mass vaccinations have used uh, or started to use drive-through clinics for for their operation. So your work at the university involves disaster management. Did you ever imagine that you would be involved in pandemic preparation or planning? Uh, This is what we have been teaching for, for, for many years and in fact one one of the cases that is one of the exercises that we often work with our students was a pandemic like this. Uh, we have done many exercises like like this. Of course, we uh, we although this was or should be what we study and examine and prepare our, ourselves and our students for that. But you know, to predict that this would happen in our lifetime when we are doing uh, it was uh, not you know uh, say like many others uh, we. we we knew that this this kind of hazards and disasters uh, may happen, but when uh, that was 
not known to to me uh, at that point. But uh, yes, I mean, uh, this is something we we teach, and so we had uh, kind of um, imagination of what what will happen and how how this is going to impact the society and the general public, etc. And uh, in fact, that's very good to say that the beginning of a pandemic, we, I was teaching a course, uh, and as pandemic was happening last year, I mean, uh, students uh, were realizing much better when we were what we were talking about, because I was talking about the same pandemic, for example, two years ago, uh, in my class, it was difficult for students to grasp, you know, what we are talking about. But in this time, they see what we are talking about in, in, in real and mm-hmm. uh, on their own, uh, you know, uh, life and work and, and so on. That, that makes a whole difference in, you know, learning and understanding what we meant by that. Well, absolutely. When lecture and theory becomes reality, you really understand what's happening, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Could you share with us what's next? What else are you working on? Uh, for now, uh, we, we are doing uh, more of these kind of uh, vaccination-related uh, research or expanding that to other places as this becomes available to them. Uh, this is uh, an area that probably we will be focusing more uh, uh, for the next uh, uh, few months till uh, you know uh, situation get stable uh, and or at least this level of mass vaccination might not be needed but we do uh, all other types of research related to covid post covid situation um, but also you know uh, hopefully as this gets more stable we also continue our other uh, research projects uh, related to other emergencies and disasters, we, we never know. Like, uh, you know, uh, this is now we are going to springtime and flooding becomes an issue, going to summer, wildfire becomes, you know, an uh, issues again. Uh, these are the type of works we, we currently uh, involve, but uh, <laughs> let's see what happens uh, and uh, what's next. But overall, uh, depending on the situation, we we change our focus to uh, other events uh, in in short time. Fascinating. Yes, let's see what happens next. Professor Ali Asghari from York University, thank you for joining us on the feed. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.